0: Let's stand together, and I want to read this text to you. I'm going to read Esther 2.19 through Esther 4 and verse 3. I like that section. Sometimes it's hard in these narratives to know how, what size section of the, the story to deliver in one message, but I think this is a fitting section. So we're going to cover a little part of three different chapters this morning.
1: Let me read this text for you. Please follow along as I read. Esther 219 three. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai
0: was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, In the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, In order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. And he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to king Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are very different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may be put into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly in order of the king, and the decree
1: was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that
0: had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay
1: in sackcloth and ashes." Father, we read such words. And there is such enmity that exists between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And Father, all of it comes of your providential hand. You, being sinless and holy, work for the good of your people in and through such things and for your glory, and for the redemptive work that you have
0: promised to do through Christ. Through these things you work, Father. as we look to this particular account, may we be able to see your hand of providence and the purpose behind it. For the good of your people, for the sake of Christ, for the glory of your name. And may we be able to take what we learn here and import it into our
1: own lives. This is not just a story. This is history. This is your story. This is our story. The story of the people of God. May we receive it as such. May we respond to your truth as we ought. May we see your glory and be humbled and repentant and trusting. We thank you for your powerful providence and your loving, faithful heart towards your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Psalm 23 reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still water. You think about that do all of the paths of your life feel like green pastures and still waters are those the only kind of paths into which the good shepherd leads his sheep even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil
0: for you are with me your rod and your staff comfort me You prepare a table before Me in the presence of My enemies. You anoint
1: My head with oil. My cup overflows. Sometimes we, the sheep of Christ,
0: wander from Him into worldliness, sinfulness.
1: And we find ourselves in a very dangerous position. So what will the shepherd do then? What will He do? Well, Psalm 23 says He restores my soul. He will turn us upright and set us back on the path His righteousness.
0: He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Sometimes the path that turns us from sin and produces His righteousness in us is the path that leads us through the valley of the shadow of death
1: where we feel His rod of discipline and His staff of providential guidance.
0: Sometimes the path that strips worldliness from us and makes us like the shepherd is the path that leads us into the presence of our enemies where even
1: there, He still cares for us. But no matter what, the Good Shepherd will pursue us with goodness
0: and mercy all the days of our life, until in the end, what? We
1: will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the story of the shepherd and his sheep. Does that ring true in your life?
0: We will see that kind of providential shepherding taking place in this story, this part of the story of Ruth that we are Going to look at this morning. Let's walk through this part of the story together. Number one, and you can follow this in your outline: Mordecai's duty. And this is verses 219 through 23. Letter A in your notes, if you want to fill in some blanks, is his station, Mordecai's station. Notice in, in verse 19 here that Mordecai was one who sat at the king's gate. What is the king's gate? Did you ask that question of yourself when you read it? What's the king's gate? When we think of a gate, we just think of a door, you know, basically, a fence of some sort. Well, that's not what the king's gate is here. The king's gate was a large rectangular building. It was actually built by Hasuerus' father, Darius I. And it measured 131 by 92 feet, if the archaeological findings are correct, which I assume they are. And so in this building was a central hallway and it led to royal, the royal compound and then two side rooms as well that were rectangular in shape. And the central hall was a massive room and was supported by four columns. And on those columns there was an inscription, again, archaeological findings, an inscription that was written in three different languages. And the inscription says this, Xerxes the king says, by the grace of Ahura Mazda, the gate, Darius the king made it, he who was my father, so it's really interesting to see this the archaeological findings of this very building, this gate and it was at this gate that Mordecai was sitting, in other words, Mordecai had an official seat in Ahasuerus' court, so he was a man of position, he had some honor attributed to him and some influence, but as we have already seen in previous aspects of the story so far Mordecai has chosen to blend into the Persian culture he hasn't so far used his influence to point people to worship Yahweh at least not according to what this particular story reveals he's been one who has assimilated into the world around him rather than identify openly and courageously as a worshiper of Yahweh and as one of his chosen people And so we notice this in his secrecy. Letter B in verse 20, his secrecy, it underscores it here again, and it has before already in this story, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as she was brought up by him. Esther hadn't made known her identity. Apparently, she not only picked up this sort of secrecy from Mordecai's example, but he'd actually commanded her, don't tell anyone who you are. Mordecai seems to be more passionate about keeping his and Esther's identity hidden than he is about making the name of Yahweh known in the earth. That's an interesting comparison, isn't it? This has already been quite clear from his and her and Esther's particular reaction to Ahasuerus's Recruiting of a harem to find a new wife. But notice in this particular section here, Mordecai's service. Let us see his service. This is verses twenty-one to twenty-three. There's two eunuchs, big, thin and Teresh, and apparently these men guarded the king's door, possibly even to the king's private quarters. Now that would be expected when you have a king as important as a You'd want bodyguards all over the place. And so you have these two eunuchs, and they were angry at the king. Doesn't say why they were angry, but just says they were. And there's no surprise there. You could imagine these different men watching Ahasuerus operate as king like we have, and like this this guy's he's crazy. We gotta we gotta get him out. Right? And so they were planning to assassinate him. That's what is meant by. This particular statement, they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus in verse 21. So Mordecai became aware of this plot. That's providence, right? God opening his eyes, opening his ears to hear of this plot. And he told Esther. Esther's presence there, however evil her doings to get there, again, her presence as the queen is part of God's unfolding providence. And so, Mordecai told Esther, and Esther told the king. Esther made sure, as you can see there in verse 22, that that she reported this as an act of loyalty and a duty done by Mordecai in his name. Again, God is providentially at work. Don't forget these little pieces along the way. So, what does Ahasuerus do in response to this excellent act of service rendered to him by Mordecai? Letter D. We'll call it his slight, Mordecai's slight. Ahasuerus made sure to have Mordecai's report investigated. Please notice that. We'll, look at, we'll, we'll refer back to that later. The affair was investigated. That seems responsible enough. And the report that Mordecai gave was accurate. The assassina- assassination plot was discovered and dealt with. Big Finn and Keresh were hanged on the gallows. Now, this is the first reference that we have in the book of Esther. It won't be the last, to gallows. And when we think of gallows, we think of probably the Old West with you a know, big uh, hangman's noose, right? And that's not what the Persians did. What the Persians did when we're talking about gallows is really something more like a great big stake upon which they impaled someone and left them hanging there. This is a pretty grotesque picture in your mind. But that was often the Persian
1: way of the gallows. And so that's what happened to Bigfin and Teresh. That was the usual
0: practice. But also what was a usual practice of Persian kings was to generously reward and honor such an act of loyalty from someone like Mordecai. This guy here is of the assassination plot, and he does something about it. Maybe even in spite of how he feels in his heart. And of course, that that sounds very much like what, what God instructed His people to do even in this pagan land in Jeremiah 29. He said, work for the welfare of the people around you and
1: it will be good for you as well. But what happened? Ahasuerus... Fails us here again. Apparently, the
0: only immediate response that Hasheerus takes to this particular act of loyalty from Mordecai was to record it in his book of chronicles for later bedtime reading. That's it. That's all we hear at, the, at this at this point. No great honor initially given to Mordecai, nor of a generous reward for saving the king's life.
1: Now. The next recorded events in the story of Esther, which pick up then in chapter 3,
0: happen actually five years later. Please know that there is a five year span, or five year gap, I should say, between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. Let me show you this. If you look, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 16, look back there in your scriptures. Verse 16, it says, When Esther was taken to the king of Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the what? The seventh year of his reign. The seventh year of the reign of we Well, then look also then in chapter 3 in verse 7. The end of the verse, it says that, um, or the beginning of the verse, sorry, in the ver- first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So chapter 2 is 7th year, chapter 3 is the 12th year. We've got a five-year difference there. But what we do find here is that there is an ironic contrast to what just happened between Mordecai and Ahasuerus. Chapter 3 picks up with something very unexpected, a very interesting and, like I said, ironic contrast between the end of chapter 2 the beginning of chapter 3. One thing we do know in all of this though is that God is providentially at work in Mordecai's life. Keep that in mind during this, as, as I as rehearse to you this story. God is providentially at work in all these things. What is God doing in Mordecai's life with allowing him to discover this plot and even to be slighted in a reward? And so on as the story unfolds. Well, what happens? That's such an ironic contrast to Mordecai's slight at the end of chapter 2. Well, number 2, let we'll let's call it Mordecai's disobedience. And we're talking here not of his uh, disobedience to God, but his disobedience to the king's command, as you will see. Letter A, notice first of all this promotion, the promotion.
1: Verse 1, out of the blue, No apparent reason given here. Ahasuerus promotes this guy named what? Haman. You don't even know why. Well, he didn't promote Mordecai for saving the
0: life of the king, but now all of a sudden he's promoting Haman for no recorded reason. I think we should call him Haman the Heinous. Does that sound good? And he is. He is heinous. And this is not just a little promotion. He was advanced above all the officials who were with him. And again, a very strange thing. Mordecai saves the life of a king. He gets a record for bedtime reading. Haman's not mentioned for doing anything in particular. And he's advanced beyond all the other officials around him. What Mordecai personally thought about this, this slight next to Haman's promotion, isn't recorded for us. We don't know what he thought about it. We can only imagine. But let's think for a moment here what the text says about not just Haman's promotion, the promotion, but the man himself. The man himself. Notice the title given here. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha And advanced him. Whenever an Old Testament narrative goes the extra mile to make very clear the particular identity of a character, that's not an accident. It's because we must understand that there is a very important role that he must play in the plot. You're drawn, your attention is drawn to the identity of this particular person. We see here is that he's the son of Hamadatha. But we also notice here that Haman is an Agagite.
1: What is that? Does that ring any bells for you in your memory of biblical history? The Agagite.
0: Let me take you on a little bit of an Old Testament history journey. Turn first,
1: please, to Exodus chapter 17. And the rest of this will make so much more sense to us.
0: And I know some of you are already thinking along these lines. Exodus 17, this is not too long after Israel's exodus from Egypt. And what we see here, Exodus 17, verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men. And go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Does God have the divine authority to do such a thing? He sure, certainly does. And we don't need at this time to try to, to plumb the depths of the divine counsel to figure out why, other than that this was a sinful people worthy of God's judgment. He will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne, the Lord the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation wow of course we all deserve that right but god had chosen to allow this particular nation to remain in their sin and to be at war with them from generation to generation
1: amalek turn to deuteronomy chapter 25 now Deuteronomy chapter 25, just look at the last three verses. Remember that Deuteronomy
0: is the sermon, the final sermon that Moses gave to the people of Israel before they went into the land of of promise and took over the land that God had promised to them. And what is one of the things that Moses says from the words of God, he says, Deuteronomy 25, 17, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? We just read that, right? Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt? How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Isn't that something? I can't get my mind around that entirely, but God is commanding His people never to forget what Amalek did to them on their way out of Egypt and to
1: blot out the memory forever. Now, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. And we'll look at verses 7 through 9. This is the account where God commanded Saul through Samuel and the army of Israel to go and completely eliminate Amalek. But Saul didn't completely obey, did he?
0: Verse 7 of 1 Samuel 15 says, And Saul defeated the Amalekites
1: from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took who? Agag. That's right. Oh, now we know who Haman is, don't
0: we? And we took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. That's the key word there. So apparently, there are even some
1: folks that they did not, under God's command, put to death. And those people began to prosper again. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So now we come over to Esther. And we see that most probably, Haman
0: is a descendant of Agag, king of Amalek. The enemies of Israel who attacked Israel on their way out of Egypt whom Saul and the armies of Israel were to eliminate completely at God's command, but failed to do
1: for the sake of worldly desire. Isn't that something to think about? Now, who is Mordecai? Remember? So Mordecai, he's a descendant of who? Don't forget. Look back. Verse 5 of chapter 2. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose
0: name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Who else is a descendant of Kish? Saul. Oh, so we've got, we've got like a, a, a resurgence of Agag and Saul
1: here. That's what we have. We have the descendants of Agag and Saul. And here we are again.
0: These are descendant, Mordecai is a descendant of Saul of Israel who should have completely eliminated Agag, the, the Amalekite king and, and all his people by God's command but failed to do so. There's certainly a lesson in that, isn't there? Incomplete obedience to the will of God. We won't focus on that, but let's move on. Remember, God commanded His people through Moses that when they enter the land of promise, they are given rest from their enemies. They are to absolutely blot out even the memory of amalek from under heaven and not to forget to do so now let's think about this for just a moment because i my mind sort of reels from a situation like this this cannot mean this does not mean that mordecai should have made an attempt on haman's life right then and there i don't think that's what this text implies then see that would not be the implication at this point in israelite history they're no longer functioning as a theocratic government but they were at one time. And in that theocratic government, they were, they were under the immediate, visible, physical rule of God as their... wherever He was with them in the form of the pillar of cloud and fire. And so God would say to the people of Israel, you must go and put to death these people. Can God do that? That is one of the biggest issues that people have when they try to discredit God's Word. I think, well, Israel they killed people why did Israel kill people like that because Yahweh told them to and what do we know from the beginning the wages of sin is what is death is it just for sinners to die sinners like us yes the question is not why God chose through a particular nation to put to death some of these sinful nations. The question is, is why did not God put every nation and every people of the world to death immediately? That's the question we
1: should be asking when we come to those quandaries. Why is God merciful at all? Because He's full of love and kindness. And He does save so many by His grace. And so what we have here is an exiled people who had been disciplined by
0: God, and in exile they were to work for the welfare of their conquerors so that it may go well for them. We don't have a people that, are, that have God as their immediate physical king. This is no longer a, a theocratic government here. This is an exiled, disciplined people who are being encouraged to, to work for the welfare of the people wherever they are. And they were to expectantly wait for the 70 years of exile to be completed and to trust God to bring them back to Judea and Jerusalem and the temple and to restore them. We read that last week. But Israel and Amalek, Amalek and their descendants were by God's sovereign decree, still at enmity with each other, weren't they? It was that enmity. Notice the title given to Haman in verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from the hand from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son
1: of Amadatha. what, the enemy of the Jews. The author of Esther has emphatically drawn attention to the history,
0: the historic ancestry of both Mordecai and Haman, to underscore the relationship of enmity that exists between them and their people. Now, why is that so important to the story? We've got their descendants. We see the enmity. We understand the history. Well, let's continue to find out why that's so important. Letter C, the command. Number two, letter C, the command. All of Ahasuerus' servants at his gate bowed in homage to Haman, and the king
1: actually commanded that. Did you notice that? The king had so commanded. And this bowing is really not that big of a deal. It's a common practice
0: showing honor and respect to those of a greater political position. There's nothing strange about this. There's really nothing religious about it either. Those who bowed to Haman were not worshiping him as a deity. They were showing homage, respect, like someone would bow to the king or bow to a duke or a prince or whatever. But Mordecai, we would think, shouldn't have an issue bowing in respect to Haman. Except for what? Haman isn't any ordinary person. And neither is Mordecai. And so letter D, you have this refusal. The refusal. That's verses 2-4. through four. Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman or pay him homage. Why? Why? Why would he refuse such an apparently innocent gesture of respect? Well, that's... But the other servants wanted to find out. So these fellow servants at the gate tried day after day to reason with Mordecai. Why are you, why are you not obeying the king like this? What, what's the big deal? And they pressure him. And they pressure him day after day. It, it seems to me that may, they may be, even be advocating for his personal well-being. Like Mordecai, you know what's going to happen if
1: you just, just do this. Will you? Mordecai wouldn't listen. He wouldn't wouldn't have it. He wouldn't bow. The
0: servants went to Haman to see if Mordecai's reason for refusing to bow would be allowed to remain and permitted. And so what was Mordecai's reason then for not bowing to Haman? Number four, or, or letter E, I'm sorry, letter E, the confession, verse four. What does he say there at the end? Finally, something comes out in the open that hasn't come out yet. What was it? He told them he was a Jew. That's really new for Mordecai here, right? I mean, it's been underscored again and again and again. He said, don't tell anybody who we are. Don't tell them who our people are. Esther, shh!
1: Don't tell anyone. And these guys pressured Mordecai. And finally he said, I'm a Jew. Seems to me that Mordecai's convictions were
0: bound to Yahweh's words as recorded in what we read, Exodus and Deuteronomy and 1 Samuel, regarding this enmity that must remain between Israel and Amalek. And so Mordecai's conscience, can we say it this way? Mordecai's conscience will not allow him to bow for any reason to the sworn enemy of Yahweh and his people. It was at that crisis point that he finally broke. And then openly identified himself with Yahweh and the people of Yahweh.
1: I can almost imagine Mordecai conversing with the other servants, can you? Being pressed by them
0: day after day. Until finally, in frustration, Mordecai comes out with it. He's like, All right, I'm a Jew. I
1: worship Yahweh. I can't bow down to this guy. You understand now? That's what I imagine in my
0: mind happening there. He's he's trying to give these other offhanded sort of
1: lesser answers, and they're like "That, that doesn't match up. Mordecai, like, all right, I'm a Jew. Mordecai had compromised again and again to assimilate into the Persian
0: world and conceal his identity but he could not bend under the worldly influence of Persian culture any farther. And and I find it strange that he, he wouldn't bend here, and yet he sent Esther to bed with the king. But here he couldn't bend. That doesn't seem consistent to us, but it's what it is. And the God of providence knows what each of his children need to reach that That critical point of crisis. That place where they, that line that they cannot cross, where they're humbled and they're brought to their knees and brought to a place of desperation and decision and repentance. I think this is where Mordecai is and where God has brought him. So is God providentially doing that in Mordecai's life? I think we'll soon find out. The servants of the king who were reasoning with Mordecai went to Haman to see how he would respond to Mordecai's
1: refusal. How does Haman respond? Number three, Mordecai's dread. This is verses three. I'm sorry. This is this is chapter three, verse five, through chapter four, verse three.
0: I think that the events that are going to unfold here in the rest of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 are probably the reason why Mordecai has chosen to hide his identity up to this point. I don't know that for sure, but, but I surmise that he was afraid of, of what he already knew had happened throughout Israelite history. He was afraid that it would, it would come up again here under Persian reign and rule in his lifetime. He didn't he didn't trust the Persians to remain amiable to the Israelites and apparently he didn't trust God enough to protect and preserve them while they would be living lives of bold worship and identification with with Yahweh and his people. And so now Mordecai's refusal to bow has exposed him and Haman knows exactly who he is. So what's Haman's response? Letter A, Haman's passion. You see it in verse 5. He was filled with fury, rage, burning anger. Like king, like official, right? We already saw. Hasuerus' anger over being refused. Such pride. Such greed. Such hatred. But it doesn't stop there. Letter B, Haman's perversity. Haman's rage against Mordecai, verse 6, boils over to Mordecai's people as, as well. His people. Maybe Haman was aware of the history of enmity as well. I don't know that. It doesn't say that, but it almost seems like that. It says there he disdained to lay hands on just Mordecai. He thought little of it. He's like, man, that's not enough for me. That's not going to satisfy my rage. So after the servants told him of Mordecai's identity and the people, Haman decided not only to kill Mordecai, but to annihilate, exterminate
1: all of the Jews. All of the Jews. Notice how the text emphatically lays that out. Look at verse 6. He
0: disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. That is chilling. That's chilling. And we've seen that even in more recent history, haven't we? When you think of the 1930s and 40s, under Nazi Germany, the same
1: thing. This happens again and again and again, not only to the Jews, but to the people of God. What causes a man to think and act with such insanity? You ever wondered
0: that? You, you hear and you watch them, maybe, maybe uh, in recent history on... On television or a documentary, like they, they look pretty normal. seems like everybody likes them. They're very, very uh, g- g- gregarious people and personalities, and they seem so winsome. But they're insane. What is this that makes a man come to such rage? You know the answer, don't you? Genesis 3:15: It's the enmity that's placed between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. See, the kingdom of Satan is working behind the kingdoms of men to destroy the kingdom of God and the promised Son of God who would come to save his people from their sins and to reign on the earth forever and ever. That's what this enmity
1: is all about. Don't forget that. And that's why it seems so insane, it's because it's satanic. So, how does Haman put his plan into
0: motion? Let her see Haman's poor. Verse 7. Haman began to decide, began by deciding when to exterminate the Jews. So, how does he decide that? He rolls some dice, he casts some lots. Poor, like lots, were a common means of divination, an instrument by which the will of deity could be revealed to men. And so, Haman the heinous and his cruel crew got together during the first month. Notice, Notice these dates. They're not there
1: just for random facts. The first month. And what's the first Hebrew month? Nisan. And so that's when they got together and they were playing with the poor and the lot
0: fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And apparently the 13th day of the month as verse 13 indicates, notice the very last phrase, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, that was when the Jews were going to be exterminated. So, the 13th day of the 12th month is the day of Jewish extermination. So, what were Haman's plans for that day? Letter D, Haman's plan. It's in verse 8 and 9. Terrifying plan. Haman approaches the king, prepares to do some manipulation as the other officials have done so often to King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is a puppet. Have you noticed that? He's a puppet of these manipulating officials. And so Haman comes to him and he goes, hey, there's this certain people. What? They're even left unnamed. It doesn't, seem, it doesn't even seem that Ahasuerus knows which people grew. I mean, remember we looked at the beginning of this massive map of Ahasuerus' Of his empire. And Haman says, There's a certain people dispersed among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. And by the way, it has where their laws are different from everybody else's laws. He doesn't give any specifics. At least it's not recorded. They don't keep your laws, king. Again, unspecified. Maybe Mordecai is his his refusal to bow to Haman is being imputed to all of the Jews. I don't know what's going on in Haman's mind here, but it's satanic, whatever it is. And
1: Haman says, and it's not the king's prophet to tolerate them. Oh,
0: so you're telling the king what is and isn't his prophet now. Haman is deceptive, he's manipulative, telling the king what's good for him. And so he says, let these people be destroyed. Notice, not just punished. Not just punished, destroyed. We need to immediately go to capital punishment here. Let's just eliminate all of them. And so Haman sweetens the deal then for the king by saying that he will pay 10,000 talents of silver. 10,000 talents of silver. Into the king's treasury, which was, of course, you remember, depleted by the war against the Greeks which the king was certainly wanting to replenish. So where do you think maybe Haman
1: will get all that money? 10,000 talents. How much do you think that is? I think
0: he will probably get it from the plunder of the Jews that he will annihilate. Verse 13. One talent of silver is about 75 pounds. Isn't that mind-blowing? That's a lot of silver. 10,000 talents. Herodotus recorded that the tax revenue of the Persian Empire for one year during the reign of Darius was 14,560 talents. So this offering of 10,000 talents from the plunder of the Jews is nearly 70% of the entire year's revenue for the empire. Well, Haman knows how to manipulate the king, doesn't he? We'll get, we'll get, that, we'll get that treasury built up again real fast,
1: king. He knows how to move the king's motives. So, does Ahasuerus buy
0: into this plan? Or does he wisely consider everything before acting? Well, you know Ahasuerus by now. Letter E, Ahasuerus' foolishness. Verses 10 and 11. Not only does Ahasuerus give him permission to enact such a plan, what does he do? He gives to Haman. His signet ring. This is getting worse and worse as the story goes by. God is pressing His people to this dire moment, isn't He? Like our main idea is continuing to remind us of. A dire moment in which God will work what? Redemptive reversal. That's what we're moving. This is bad. He gives the enemy of the Jews His ring. The enemy of the Jews now has his ring, and notice,
1: he gives the enemy of his Jews, of the Jews, the people themselves.
0: The money is given to you, the people also. Do with them as it seems good to you. There's money, there's a ring. Have the people do what you want. I mean, Ahasuerus is the epitome of foolish kings. And to further demonstrate and underscore Ahasuerus' dangerous foolishness, just contrast what he's doing here with what happened at the end of chapter 2. In chapter 2, there's an assassination plot, right? Two officials. What does Ahasuerus do? He investigates it. He, he investigates it well and he finds out. Is this, is, this, is this real? He investigated that thoroughly. He records that in the Chronicle. But whom does he reward? No one. Not at that point. Now, in chapter 3, there's an annihilation plot. Not just the king, but like thousands of people are going to be exterminated. Thousands of his loyal subjects, one of whom actually just saved his life five years earlier,
1: but he hasn't made that connection yet. One of whom is what? His queen, but he hasn't made that connection yet. He doesn't investigate this. Did you notice?
0: He doesn't even know who they are. He doesn't care who they are. He doesn't seek to know how their laws are different. And if they've broken his laws, he apathetically gives the reins of this whole plan into the hands of Amen to do whatever he wants. Foolish, selfish apathy at the helm of a nation is, humanly speaking, dangerous, disastrous, and terrifying. But, out goes the proclamation post-haste. Letter F, Hazuerus' proclamation. What's the proclamation? Destroy. There's instructions to destroy. This is verse 13. Instructions to destroy. How many times does he have to say it? To destroy? I mean, Haman is Haman is livid with this rage to destroy, to kill, to annihilate. Can you do all three of those things? I mean, this is crazy. And not just the men either.
1: You notice, the young and the old, the women and the children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and then what? Take everything. It's almost
0: as if Haman is trying to do to the Jews what God commanded Israel to do to Amalek. When was that day to be? Again, 12th month of Adar, the 13th day decided by poor. How was the proclamation disseminated? Scribes were summoned, the edict was written, written to all the governors of every province, written in every language, written in the king's name, sealed with the king's seal, sent by couriers to the king's provinces. Copies were issued everywhere as a decree in every province and so that everyone could get ready and prepare for that very day 11 months later. Can you imagine the impact of such a decree upon the Persian Empire?
1: Everyone ordered to kill the Jews that they knew and lived with, without exception. Insanity. Confusion is an understatement, isn't it?
0: And the same decree was issued right in the citadel of Susa, the residence of Mordecai and Esther. Notice, please,
1: on what day the edict was sent out. Verse 12. Notice. Then the scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. Hmm. On the 13th day of the first month. What month is that? The month of Nissan. Nissan the 13th. The edict went out 11, 11
0: months before the day of death. So think about how the Jews
1: had 11 months to anticipate their annihilation. What a horrible year. do you remember anything special about the month of nisan maybe even the 13th day what did god command his people to begin celebrating
0: on the evening of the 14th day of the first month
1: the month of nisan what was it passover Mm. this edict went out
0: on the day before the Passover celebration was to begin.
1: Wow!
0: How would the Jews respond to such an edict the day before they were to begin the celebration in which they were, remembered with, they were to remember with joy
1: the powerful rescue of Yahweh from Egypt? Wow! Lots going on there, isn't there? What would be said by fathers at the tables of Passover all throughout the Persian Empire. Think on that. We'll come back to it. Letter G, revealing responses. Three, 3.15 to 4.3. Th- four There's four responses we see to all that just is going on. How does Ahasuerus and Haman respond? They have a drink. It's insane. Insane. Not surprising. though. The people of Susa. Remember, Persia was a melting
0: pot of people made up of different nations living day-to-day life together. Thrown into confusion, the text says. What comes to mind is that story called the miracle at midnight. That's what I think of when, when the Nazis planned to arrest the Jews of Denmark at midnight. Friday the beginning of rosh hashanah and the danes did what they hid their jewish friends or sent them across the channel to sweden but they got thousands out in time but the danes were just tortured with this cuz they lived with these people right they lived with these other jews and loved them and married them and so on you think about that and you think wow how upset both the Jews and their friends were upon hearing such insane news. People are people, right?
1: People are people. Mordecai, what what does he do? Oh. Maybe this is the most painful part of the whole book. Right here. We're at the lowest point. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth, ashes. Could you imagine him? went out in the midst of the city and cried out with loud and bitter cry even to the entrance of the king's gate. I don't know how you don't get moved by this, right? Like You you read this and you're just like, what in the world is going on with these people? Sinfulness of humanity. The king didn't allow him to enter with such a, a state of grief, which is
0: something to think about in itself. This is an open... Shameless demonstration of extreme and bitter grief. Public display of his deep mourning and distress. You know, what I see here is Mordecai beginning to change, don't you? There's no more hiding anymore. He's right out in the open crying with a loud voice. In his grief, he is identifying in his grief, Yahweh and his people. That's what he's doing. This is a different Mordecai. He's beginning to change. And the Jews, verse 3, the same thing. Great mourning, fasting, weeping and lamenting,
1: sackcloth and ashes. Fasting, mourning, weeping, lamenting. They, like Mordecai,
0: were in great mourning, sorrow, grief, and distress. We'll talk more about this
1: last verse. Very important. We'll talk about it in just a moment. Don't forget it before we come to our final part of application. Where's God in all of this terror? Get real,
0: right? Get get real with how these people would have been thinking, how people in Nazi Germany would have been thinking. Where is God in all of this? Where is His promises? How could a powerful, providential God be working in a situation this horrible? how could God possibly cause all of this perversity to work for the good of His chosen and beloved people? Sometimes I think we're desensitized to such hideous scenes. We see it on television all the time and it
1: just doesn't affect us as it ought to. This is horrible to have a whole people
0: exterminated from the earth for the rage of one man who is an instrument of Satan. How could God take all of this atrocity and use it to fulfill His redemptive plans in Christ? That does not make
1: sense on the surface, does it? Do you ever feel like that with certain events that surround your life? Or maybe someone you know and love?
0: Think of the most hideous circumstances you can possibly think of. And
1: put yourself there, or feel it yourself in your own life. There's nothing that, there's no hideous circumstance that you really can't import
0: into this and say, God, is this good? As we come to the close of the message today, let's, let's apply this part of the story to the lives of God's people and ours. There's two principles I want to close with and you have those in your notes as well. Number one, God's providence is always at work
1: even in the worst moments. God's providence is always at work even in the worst moments. This is so
0: hard to remember, isn't it? In the very moment when we feel the worst of it. There's two Proverbs that we have to think about right now that must powerfully shape our perspective of this story of Esther and our own lives at moments like this. The first one is Proverbs 21.1. What does Proverbs 21.1 say? The king's heart is a stream of
1: water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We have to remember that. Whether it's a king, or a governor, or a president, or an employer, or a husband, or whoever it is,
0: the king's heart is, in, is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God's providence is always at work, even in the worst moments. So then, who was in perfect providential control
1: when the king forgot to reward Mordecai? When the king advanced Haman? When the king commanded all to give
0: homage to Haman? When the king approved of the plan to annihilate the Jews? When the king gave his signet ring to Haman? When the king authorized the dispatching of the edict of death commanded by Haman?
1: Who was in perfect providential control of all of that? The Lord. Sinlessly, but He was in control. By either initiation or allowance,
0: God is sinlessly in perfect providential control of all things. Here's the second proverb. Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap.
1: But what? It's every decision is from the Lord. Isn't that something? Sometimes, I don't know, I joke with my kids a little bit when they
0: want to decide whose turn it is to do something, and I'll say to them, let's let the Lord
1: decide, and I'll flip a coin. But you know what? It's not that untrue, is it? The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God's providence is perfect and far-reaching.
0: Who then was in perfect providential control when the poor when the poor, was cast? When the poor fell on the 13th day of the month of Adar for the annihilation? When the edict of death went out on the day before the Passover celebration would begin the 13th day
1: of Nisan? Who was in charge of that little dice? God the unseen God of Esther
0: was in perfect providential control we may be able to see these truths and apply them in Esther and take heart at the moment but can we see them and apply them in our own lives too
1: it is at dire moments like these that we must learn to remember who God is And what He can do. We must must learn that. We must remember what He has promised to all who are in Christ.
0: The promises of God will stand. Remember that He will at times bring us to what we feel is the brink of disaster. And there, There, at that precipice, accomplish His saving and sanctifying plans for us. That's how God works in His providence. Remember that He has made a promise to His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He will redeem a people for His name forever. And remember that that He spent the life of His own Son to pay for the fulfillment of that saving promise And remember that he will never go back on that promise, no matter what. He loves Christ and he loves his people and he loves his own glory too much to go back on any promises. This is why Paul wrote, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purpose, the purpose of being transformed in the image of Christ,
1: to bring glory to Christ. This is why Paul writes, if he did not spare his own son,
0: but deliver him up for us all, how will he also not with him freely give us all things?
1: Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know that God And His providence is always at work, even in the worst moments. But why would God choose such a hard
0: road for His people? And where is He taking them on that hard way? Why that way? You've asked that before, haven't you? Why is is sanctification so long and so hard? (laughs) Number two, God's providence is at work to lead His people to repentance, and faith in Him for His glory. Think about this with me carefully. I believe that that this part of the story, in this part of the story of Esther, God is bringing Mordecai and the Jews to a breaking point. He's bringing them to a crisis, to a line they cannot cross. He's humbling them. And He's calling
1: them to repentance. Think about how worldly Mordecai has been. He's compromised. He's assimilated
0: into the culture. He's not been salt and light by courageously and lovingly declaring his identity in Yahweh and his people just like Daniel did or Joseph did or many others. He has kept his identity quiet. He has given his adopted daughter to the king without resistance. He has done his duty to the king by saving his life. That's a good thing, but it's been his all-consuming passion evidently Now the king has forgotten him. Now the king has commanded that he bow to Haman of all people. Now the king has approved of his extermination and the annihilation of the people he
1: loves. What's come of Mordecai's devotion to the world? It's turned on him, hasn't it? What's God doing through all of this in Mordecai's heart? I think...
0: God brought Mordecai to a crisis point at which he could no longer compromise, no longer conceal his identity, no longer anxiously trust in his own diplomatic ability to blend in and be a people pleaser. I think God has brought Mordecai to the first steps of repentance from his love of the world, from his fear of man, from his self-love. I see Mordecai's repentance beginning with his confession of who he is. He told them that he was a Jew. And with his public demonstration of grief. Does that make sense? He's coming out of himself and he's identifying with Yahweh. Who knows? Maybe some of that display of grief in the city center was mingled with godly sorrow over his own sinfulness and worldliness. I don't know. The story doesn't tell us that. But it seems like that's where God is taking Mordecai. And it seems from the text that both Mordecai and the Jewish people over the whole Persian Empire are being brought to repentance. I have a good reason for saying this. Let me show you. The reason I say this is because of the wording of Esther 4.3. Right here. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloths and ashes. Now this is so
1: interesting. Mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting. Do you know where else in the Old Testament those very words are found and in that order?
0: This is something.
1: There's one other place, one other
0: place in the Old Testament, that is almost identical to that last phrase, and the
1: writer of Esther would have been familiar with this text. It's Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Joel was a prophet before Esther was a queen. I want you to look at it with me. Joel 2. We're almost almost complete with this today. This is such an important connection. Joel 2.12. Look at it. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart.
0: With what? Fasting. With weeping. And with mourning, there it is. Those three words all together. I think the writer of Esther is making an allusion to the repentance that God is calling His people to in the prophet Joel.
1: Look what he says. Rend your what? Hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for He is what? He's
0: gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast. Do you remember what Esther does? She calls for a fast. Wow. Wow. Here it is. This is what's going on here in Esther. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room. Let the, chamber her, her, the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach. A byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? You see what's going on here in Esther? God is bringing His people to repentance. And it's obvious because of the allusion to to Joel. And could that be the very reason why God caused the edict of death to be proclaimed on the day before the beginning of Passover? This is the providence of God. It's amazing. He was reminding His people of who He is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He's reminding His people of who they are. You are My people and I will be your God. Right? He was reminding His people of what, they had, what He had done before them already. The plagues? <laughs> the, the Red Sea covering Pharaoh? Is this situation any more dire? No not for god he was calling them to repent of their sin and worldliness and to identify with him in faith and love and loyalty this is our god we are his people he was calling them to trust him to do once again what he had done for them so many times before to deliver them from the dangerous enemies who were at work to snuff them out since the speaking of Genesis 3.15, he was calling them to
1: believe the words of promise from the mouth of I am. I think that's what God is doing. So what about you and me as we come to our close? How is God's providence at work in your life right now? Are you in the midst of bewilderingly bitter providences? Maybe there's some things you've been able to identify yourself with, Mordecai and the people of God in Esther. Have you ever said in your pain, how is this for my good? How is this for your glory? How is this profitable, God, for, for the sake of Christ? Is God drawing your heart to repentance like He did more times? From what? From what? Are you willing? Are you willing to repent of it? Willing to grieve over your sin and your worldliness? Am I?
0: Is God teaching us to see Him as He is and trust Him as He deserves? no matter what, at the most dire moment, knowing what he can do? Is God working through his providence to help you to see your sinfulness for what it is so that you will then run to the Passover lamb who takes away your sin and clothes you in his righteousness? That's what God does in his bitter providences like this. It's not purposeless. It's always purposeful. This is why God so often providentially works in such mysterious and frightening and even painful ways in our lives. He is doing in our lives what He did in the story of Esther. Very often God causes us to see our worldliness and bring us to repentance by pushing us to the very limit of our convictions. Often God, by His strange and even bitter providence, will turn our hearts from sin to trust Him and love Him before He turns around our circumstances. Have you noticed that order? That's a strategic order. The people of God didn't repent after they knew how they'd be rescued. They were repenting here
1: before, at the worst of the moment. Before God providentially rescues us from physical disaster,
0: he providentially leads us to realize and repent of our sin. In fact, I think I could go far farther and say this. He often holds us under the pain of painful weight of his bitter providence and even adds weight until we turn to him in honest confession and godly grief over our sin. And in true God-wrought repentance and faith in Christ.
1: Why does God do that? It's because He's filled with steadfast love toward us. And He will be
0: faithful to fulfill all of His saving promises to us for the sake of Christ. You see, God would rather destroy our earthly bodies and rescue our souls than rescue our earthly bodies only to have our souls
1: eternally destroyed under His wrath against our sin forever. The Scriptures bear witness to that. Do you know how God brings a great awakening among a people? And even a nation of people?
0: you know how He does that? He often does so by providentially bringing individuals to a crisis point in which they begin to see things as they really are. And begin to repent of unfaithfulness and worldliness and sin to trust in Christ and follow Him boldly and lovingly and faithfully as their Lord by His grace. It's through God's providential wooing of His people to repent as that He advances His redemptive plans and fulfills all of His purposes in Christ forever. He who calls us, it's faithful. He will surely do it. That's what He's doing in Esther.
1: This is what God does through His powerful providence today as well as He did in Esther. And believe me,
0: For the repenting, trusting people of God, the best is yet to come. And Esther will bear that out. So see the glory of God as he providentially works redemptive reversal. The most important redemptive reversal is the turning of our hearts, isn't it? (laughs) At the most dire moment, for the sake of Christ,
1: and let us learn to trust him wholeheartedly. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. Father, we look at this and we can relate with it in some degree. And we are given hope because you came, you sent Christ to save us
0: from our sins. And you will employ many things to move us to that repentance and faith. Thank you, God. We need it. We do need that. We need Your providence to bring us to humble
1: repentance and loving trust in You. Help us to trust You in Your providence and to be tender and sensitive and to to take hope In all of your promises. Knowing that
0: you are the good shepherd in all of this. You are leading us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. You will cause our cup to overflow even in the presence of our enemies. You will anoint us with oil. You will pursue us to save us by your goodness and loving kindness.
1: All the days of our lives. And thank you that all whom you pursue like that will dwell in your house forever. Father, we are thankful. Help us to begin to practice these truths in the bitter providences providences that You have for us presently,
0: so that then we will be prepared and matured for the day when we face a bitter providence much more like what the Jews faced in the book of Esther.
1: And may we bring You glory through it all and long for heaven, where You will be all in all to us. We pray this in the name of Christ. With thanksgiving, amen.